Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Anna Bank, the author of Islamic Sufi Networks in the Western Indian Ocean, circa 1880 to 1940, Ripples of Reform, published by Brill in 2014. Dr. Anna Bang is a professor of history at the University of Bergen in Norway. Her research interests are the Islamic history of the Western Indian Ocean in the 19th and the 20th centuries, including Yemen, Oman, Kenya, Tanzania, and Mozambique. Her work has mainly focused on various forms of religious change, such as texts and book circulation and reforms of ritual and teaching practices, but also social, legal, and political change. Professor Anna Bank conducted projects for the digitization and conservation of manuscripts and texts which are in private ownership and in danger of environmental degradation, among other factors in East Africa, which we will be talking about later in this interview. By discussing Islamic Sufi networks in the Western Indian Ocean, we will explore how, in the period from 1880 to 1940, organized Sufism spread rapidly in the Western Indian Ocean. New communities turned to Islam, and Muslim communities turned to new texts, practices, and religious leaders. On the East African coast, the Sufi orders were both vehicles for conversion to Islam and reform of Islamic practices. Professor Anna Bank traced the impact of Sufism on local communities geographically as a ripple, reaching beyond the Swahili cultural zone southwards to Mozambique, Madagascar, and Cape Town. Through an investigation of the texts, ritual practices, and scholarly networks that went alongside Sufi expansion, this book places religious change in the Western Indian Ocean within the broader framework of Islamic reform. 
Speaking from the North Sea, welcome Anna to New Books in the Indian Ocean World. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book today. Thank you so much, Ahmed. I'm glad to be with you. I'm uh, glad to look from the North Sea to the Indian Ocean. It's amazing how the last time we've met was in 2019 summer, I believe, during a, a workshop that you've organized with Professor Scott Rees on East Africa's Islamic manuscripts. And you brought graduate students and researchers from Mozambique, uh, Zanzibar, Lamu, and all the way to Ethiopia. And today we meet again uh, during the elections day of Tanzania and Zanzibar. Yeah, uh, that is, I, I've been following it uh, all day, actually. And I, I sent my wishes yesterday for a peaceful and free and fair election. We'll will have the results soon of that. The elections in Zanzibar has always been contested. So my main hope is that it will be peaceful, free, and fair. We will be uh, following up. And um, I'm glad that we have this opportunity to share the book today. Uh, before we start talking about the book, um, I would like you to say a few words about yourself that is uh, where you grew up, how, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study about Islam and the Indian Ocean, and any influential mentors that you had along the way. Okay, I I grew up actually where right where I'm sitting right now because now we are in home offices due to the COVID pandemic, of course. Uh, which is uh, a rural community a little bit south of Bergen in uh, Norway, or it used to be a rural community. Now it's increasingly becoming a suburb as, as everywhere else. Uh, so there was no, nothing in particular to say that I should take an interest in the Indian Ocean at all. Uh, I studied uh, first in Stavanger, which is a city south of here then in Bergen, and then I started to study history. And <laughs> I remember to this day, I walked into the hall, which at that time it was uh, simply a blackboard where you had the choices of this or supervisors or topics. And all the topics were like Viking age or rural farm development in Norway and things like that. And then there was one poster that said uh, Egypt under Nasser. And I thought, okay, that's probably interesting. And then I ticked off on that one and I walked into the office of my supervisor, who the person who was to become my supervisor. And that was uh, Sean Ufahi, who was then the professor of African Islamic history at, uh, in Bergen. And it sort of just rolled from there. He uh, first supervised me on my MA thesis, which was on Yemen, uh, the Idrisi state in Yemen. And uh, I realized then, of course, that Yemen has a reach that goes far beyond its borders and into the Indian Ocean. And then... Gradually, I came into, into the East African side. Actually, my PhD proposal said I would study uh, Hadramis in Indonesia. So <laughs> these, are the, these are the chances and the random events of life that just take you. Amazing. Uh, I remember reading um, an interview conducted with Professor Fai 
about his own research in Darfur and the fact that he also saved uh, a number of manuscripts and documents from that region by photographing them, which they are lost to us, unfortunately. So it's, it's really fascinating to see you following the footsteps of Fahi and also doing similar work um, in, in Africa. Um, let's, let's turn to the book because the book is very rich and there's a lot of things I would like to ask you about. Um, let's start with how did the book idea develop? What was the research process like uh, and your writing experience of um, Sufi, uh, Islamic Sufi networks in the Western Indian Ocean? Well, uh, to, to be honest, uh, actually, the, the book developed, I, I would say, first and foremost, from a, from a funding proposal. It's as mundane as that, because I worked almost 15 years in, uh, in research institutes uh, uh, where you have to rely on external funding. So what you do is you sit down, you write these really, really ambitious uh, project proposals, and towards the end, you sort of realize, oh, my God, I have to deliver on all, all these promises. And, and the project at that time was, was called, uh, I, I actually looked it up now before our talk. Uh, it was entitled Linking Global Cities, Tracing Local, local Practices in the Western Indian Ocean. And it included uh, many researchers, uh, for, uh, Abdul Sharif from Zanzibar, Professor Abdul Sharif, Elke Stockwriter, and others. And uh, the idea behind the project was actually quite simple. Uh, this was back in 2005 or six, I think. And we wanted to look at selected sites on the East African coast and then ask questions like, what, what is the same? What's different in terms of Islamic practices? And at that time, we were thinking very much in terms of the local global context which was kind of current language back then but along the way I, I got much more interested in uh, in Islamic reform and reformism if if this if you do see this variation which you do then uh, I started to ask how, how do these leaders propose change and how does that play out in the broader context of Islamic reform and in the very local context. So it sort of developed from, from there. It, it came out of a much more sort of mapping-like where we were looking at text and diffusion of text and so on. And for me, it merged, it or it sort of grew into a, a study of reform more than diffusion and local global issues. So the impact of Sufism as such in East Africa is, or was, and still is, very well documented. So it made sense to me at the time, at least, to look at variation and both within the same scholarly systems, I mean, the same uh, tariqas, the Alawiyah, the Shadiliyah, the Qadiriyah, the big ones, and across locations. So th this question just sort of came up out of another research. And I think this book is the, at least an attempt to synthesize what, what we did in that project. So the book, as you've said, gathered and synthesized uh, the research that was ongoing and you've 
And you've written a number of works prior to this book, uh, such as The Idrisi State of Asir, published in 1996, uh, and then Sufis and Scholars of the Sea, Family Networks in East Africa, 1860 to 1925, published by Routledge in 2003, which is actually translated now into Arabic uh, under the title Sufiyu Ulama al-Bihar al-Shabakat wal-Alaqat al-Usariya fi Sharq Afriqiyan, published last year by a Yemeni publisher in Tarim. Um, and then Restless uh, in 2005, and then finally Zanzibar Olsen in 2008. So um, do you find uh, this book connects or departs from your previous works? And if so, in, in what ways? In different ways, actually. I mean, the, the ripples of reform, I think it's a... It's a most direct continuation of uh, Sufis and scholars of the sea, uh, but with a much wider geographical lens. And, and that was my purpose, both with the project proposal and with the book. The Sufis and scholars of the sea was really focused on the Hadramaut to Zanzibar axis in a way, although I did trace the main character, the Ahmad bin Sumayt, to Grand Comor, to Egypt, to Istanbul, and there are also these extensions that go to, to Kerala, that go to Indonesia. So it, it's more, mostly, mostly directly related to that book. About the other books you mentioned, I think maybe they are related in a little bit different way. The, the one on the Idrisi state of Asir, I Retrospectively, at least, I think it can be argued that it deals with somewhat similar topics that how ideas are used to claim authority. But in the case of the Idrisi state, I was talking about actual political authority. But uh, the work I did with that one uh, introduced me to the Yemeni context and alerted me, like I said, to the much, much, much broader world that you have to acknowledge and be aware of when, when you work on Yemen, even if it was a very local, small state that was profiled in that book. Mm. Regarding Zanzibar Olsen, I, I, that, that was just a side project for me on, on Norwegian timber trade, which I wrote under another project. Everything here was so very much project-related. Uh, and that project was called In the Wake of Colonialism on Norwegian traders and uh, uh, yeah, generally no Norwegian commercial activity in the period. So I worked on a small timber trading company that was in Zanzibar exactly in the same years as uh, I'm writing about in Sufis and Scholars of the Sea and also in the Ripples book. So to me, it was just another small facet of the big picture, if you like. And it's, it was one that I keep in mind sometimes when I write about Zanzibar, because, you know, these, these people are present at the same time in a very small town, as you know, where people live very close to each other. Like Zanzibar Olsen, for example, he was almost next door neighbor to Ahmad bin Sumayt, who is in the Sufis and Scholars book, I actually looked them up on the maps. So they were 
three or four houses between them. And it sort of it helps you think about what this society was like. And it was also for both of them, and whether you look at it from the side of the Sufi scholars or these Norwegian traders or basically any other, the one that is so deeply marked by the colonial presence. So it was for me a very good way of understanding really the impact of the colonial mm -hmm. presence. Uh, the, the last book you mentioned, yeah, that's, that is, uh, that's, an, that's an essay that has to do with travel as such. So it's more a reflection on how travel changes you, how you are in the world when you are not in your home, when you move around. So in that sense, I think you may say it prepared me for writing about uh, scholars who appear in uh, Ripples of Reform. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and, and in addition to your scholarly works, you've also an accomplished novelist uh, in Norwegian. You've published three novels. Uh, and I've translated them into English, but I'm not sure how truthful the translation is. The, the first is The Art of Escape, <laughs> published in 1997, in Reality, published in 2003, and Time and Silence, published in 2006. Correct me if these translations are right or wrong. They are pretty Thanks. good. <laughs> um, you draw on your knowledge of Arabic in Yemen for your second novel, in Reality. Uh, can you share with us... Uh, your thoughts on the crossroads of writing fiction and historical narratives, as you've alluded to, do you see your creative and scholarly works speaking to each other? And if so, in what ways historians can profitably engage in both genres of writing? Uh, actually, I, I think it, uh, it can work in quite different ways. I, I can first say how it works for me and then try to reflect a bit more on the writing process. I mean, frankly, sometimes I, I get really fed up with academic work. <laughs> That's, uh, I mean, historical inquiry, which is what we do, which is what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, it's, it is really interesting. It's really important. And it Really, I think I really do believe it leads to understanding somehow or, you know, a knowledge that is both useful and applicable. And not least, I think it leads, at best, it leads to really fruitful debate. But as you know, I think many historians know <laughs> that sometimes in the day-to-day -day work, it's incredibly dry. You just sit there and you read and you look for something and you sit in the archives and you turn another dusty page and another dusty page. Uh, and it's frankly sometimes boring. At least that's how I experienced it. So for me, fiction, fiction, both reading but also writing, is, has always been a kind of escape, like a place where anything is possible. If you want to say this, you just say it. You don't have to argue or reason or show in any other. You don't have to build your argument. You can structure it according to different rules, if you like. So, and, and it's only, only your own imagination that binds you. So I guess my, my two sort of worlds they speak to each other in that sense but 
And and the one that you mentioned, uh, the hold on reality or grip on reality, or that was actually deliberately set in in partly in Yemen, in in South Yemen, even in Hadramaut. <laughs> I think, if I remember correctly, that I even said it explicitly. And I, I think it was a more than anything, it was a stern, very stern warning to myself because the one of the the main male protagonist there is an archaeologist and his life ends really badly because he quite literally turns to dust <laughs> in in his dusty setting over his dusty old things. He just crumbles and becomes uh, a pile of dust uh, and ends there. So to me, I, I, I remember writing it as a warning to myself. On the other hand, I, I do find that I, I, I find imagination to be an essential quality of being an historian. If you, you will never have all the dots. If you work from, especially if you work from archival material, but even also from textual material like the Islamic texts that I've been working on. However well-trained you are, however knowledgeable, you, you will not have every single dot in the path. So you have to fill in the blanks with, simply with your imagination. The only difference being that in a, historic, a historical study or a proper historical work, you, you would have to argue for the leaps of your imagination. And I... I I do find also a lot of inspiration in history, I think. I mean, his, history is magic in so many ways. You, it is like a country which you, well, that's a cliche that it's a, it's a foreign country, but it's a country which you have to imagine. You have no choice if you are, if you, are curious about what life is like in, I don't know, let's say the Maldives, which I am, by the way, <laughs> then you simply go there. But with the past, you can't. So you you can let it inspire your imagination in, the, in, in a whole different way. So, and, and last point, I mean, I, in the course of my work, I've had to, I've had to, I've had the pleasure of uh, working in different languages, uh, English, which we are using now, Arabic, for example, French. And I sometimes find it really, um, I find it uh, inspiring in itself, the way other languages will express the same concept. So, so it means that in my, I can, I can make poetry in my own language simply by rephrasing something that is a common statement in Arabic or or English for that matter. So it's it, there is the element of playing with uh, languages, which I can only do in in my native language. I would never be able to do it in English, or let alone any of the others. These are very useful insights. Thank you for sharing them. Uh, definitely, imagination, in a way, it's a con the connective tissue you would say of of history. Right, we bring in. Um, these archival clues, and then we try to stitch them together in a narrative, most of which is, you know, based in, in that connective tissue uh, that we call imagination. Um, 
and and this shows actually in some of you know the way you would uh, write your titles, the way you would describe certain uh, concepts uh, comes across in the book. Um, so in the chapters uh, of of Islamic Sufi networks in the Western Indian Ocean, um, you travel with us across seven chapters uh, with uh, an introduction and a conclusion with a very useful also appendix on the consulted collections and their source materials from around the Indian Ocean at the end of the book. Um, and you've organized the book geographically and thematically to move uh, along the coastal towns of East Africa from Lamu of the Kenyan coast to Cape Town between the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean, as well as the trans-regional connections of these ports to Batavia in Southeast Asia, Mecca, Medina, Cairo, Beirut, Mzab in Algeria, Muscat in Oman, Tarim and Shabam in, in Hadramaut, Yemen. And in the introduction, uh, you stated the aims of the book as first, um, and I quote you, to link the locations of the Haramain, that is Mecca and Medina, and Hadramaut, Lamu, Zanzibar, and Comoro Islands, northern Mozambique, Diego Suarez, and Cape Town with one general movement of Sufi-based Islamic reformist activity. And the second aim is to place changes in this region within the wider Islamic reformist discourse in the mid and late 19th century and early 20th century. I would like to ask you, how can the method of following traveling texts and Sufis around the Indian Ocean can help us think about and write Indian Ocean histories? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think first of all, it's, well, we can talk more about the sort of the argument of the cosmopolis and, and the textual cosmopolis later on, but I, I think that just the very textual presence of a certain set of Islamic texts in itself is a, is a is a way of tying together and and creating this textual space if you like for the for this particular part of the indian ocean with unlimited time and resources i'm, I'm i know that you could easily tie in uh, southeast asia as well so to me it is helpful to but but only to a point you know because from the methodological point of view, I think, yeah, well, I mean, the texts are there. They, they, are, they are around, and, and there is even more than we know and we think and we have mapped. So as, as historians, this, this is what we've, we've got to work with in a way. And, and a proper mapping of, uh, of all the texts is yet to be done, so hopefully it will be done. Well, this... The ripples of reform book is really just scratching the surface, I think. But from if you if you make the argument or if you have the starting point, then that these texts are foundational in a sense to society, which are then Muslim societies. Then you you can make the argument that these texts form the basis of thinking around all kinds of issues, really. From, from the state, as was, would be the argument then in, for example, the Idrisi book, legitimacy, uh, daily practice, like 
from from the most uh, formal and normative to the least uh, least normative to put it that way morals and, and just everyday life in a way so so an idea of what the ulama read and what they copied and what they made waqf and what they decided to have in their libraries is is a way to access this foundation i th- that's the argument i make in the book anyway that's not to say that all these as- all these aspects are necessarily expressed or let alone implemented the fact that you read something in a book doesn't mean that you are prone or even interested in actually implementing it or of course it also doesn't mean that everybody can read it that's a very vital uh, qualification and of those who read it it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's fully familiar with the total discourse here so so there there are limitations here uh, i actually also think and i i tried to explore that a little bit in in, in the ripples of reform that these texts are in a kind of roundabout way they are a way to access the more sort of mundane daily life and and then i'm particularly thinking about uh, the so-called small texts or little texts you know thicker texts what people copied in their notebooks what the students wrote down when they sat in madrasa classes in in that way you you see a you can get a glimpse of you know the the more sort of not not the big tradition not the fiqh books not the big tracts of uh, of sufism so and what was going on on the day to day basis in the in the madrasas and in the communities but uh, again i mean I, i do think there are some serious limitations because when what i did there in the ripples book i looked into i looked i looked into one window in a way and and there could be there are many other windows <laughs> this is just one so i i get a certain view and uh, islamic texts in arabic are not of course not the only texts that circulate especially not in east africa uh, there is a, the whole range of texts in swahili the poetry tradition which many others are working on uh, like uh, uh in germany and uh, elsewhere so clarissa vier and others just so this window this i don't see that through the the window where i'm looking and as we go into the more modern period of course and and the colonial era all kinds of text appear many of them from egypt some of them i trace in the in the ripples book others not some of european origin some from india uh, from all over the world and sometimes i i ask myself you know let what if we looked at completely different texts when was the first copy of the communist manifesto or something circulated in east africa how would that look like if you if if history is a uh, a kind of tower then it has windows all around and it all depends on where you're looking so i'm i'm not 
I'm not I'm not entirely convinced of my own method here. <laughs> but for when it comes to the movement of people, I think that's uh, in a way much more straightforward because the Tarajama literature, the biographical literature is so rich, so straightforward in a way. The, the scholar teachers and, and the biographies about them, they tend to say they did, they did this, they did that, they traveled over there, they met so-and-so. So this is a source. It's a straightforward historical source, I think, yeah, subject to normal source criticism, but you get a lot of factual history out of this. And, and you also get the agency aspect, which I think is also, you can draw it quite easily from there. Mm-hmm. Then that has limitations too. What you don't get is how did they think about their experiences exactly when going, settling in Mozambique, for example, as a Dawa agent? How, how did they experience that? You only get the, the facts. You don't get uh, you don't get the motivation other than Tawa or spreading Islam or reforming Islam and so on. So, but uh, in in combination, I I will argue that you do get uh, you do get a map of a of a certain Islamic space in the Western Indian Ocean. Yes. Uh, definitely. Um, and I like your uh, emphasis on the ephemeral text, the, the pamphlets, the small, you know, uh, decker text that you, you follow, uh, in addition to the manuscripts and the, and the larger tracts. Um, and of course, these texts are not, you know, traveling in vacuum. They're embedded in institutions. They're embedded in larger history and networks, which you trace in this book. Um, and that takes me to your second chapter, The Luminescent Sun and Brilliant Rays of Light towards a geography of reform. Um, would you sketch for our listeners the examined religious geography in the book and what, what contributes to its coherence and diversity, perhaps using the same metaphors of light and ripples as you did, um, especially in thinking about the monsoon winds, right? Uh, and, and what lays beyond the, that, that sort of uh, ecological space? Well, you know, the the ocean really lends itself to met- metaphor in so many different ways, and it's easy to get carried away in your metaphor. So I'm not... Uh, I don't want to push the metaphors here. On the other hand, I, I feel rather on safe grounds with the metaphor of light, because that is... It's used in religious discourse... I think everywhere and, and to be enlightened and so on. And, and Islam is certainly no exception to this. The Madina al-Munawira and the Sufi tradition, which is full of all these uh, visions of light emanating from scholars and from texts and from the graves and so on, and, and from lineages and what have you. Uh, and, and especially the idea of da'wah, of spreading, whether spreading Islam or spreading a kind of reformist idea of Islam is very explicitly formulated in that way. So what, what I tried to do there in, in the 
second chapter of Ripples was simply to use the same language and the same metaphors and and place uh, these different scholarly centers as a kind of what uh, like beacons that sounds very sounds very Rashid Rida like but places from which uh, right light emanate clear and illuminating light and so on so i positioned these centers then especially uh, in east africa the hadramaut and then the haramein uh, as these sort of core centers of light uh, but then of course the key protagonists then are the are these teacher teacher scholars i i, I use the word teacher scholar but you could also call them uh, dawa agents or, or just traveling scholars for that matter. Uh, they represent then the, the race in a way, how, how did this light emanates? And, and it is represented as such by themselves and in, in the way they write about each other. And the reform then, which they... Uh, to various degrees spread, then that represents these ripples that emanates and uh, flows across the sea. And I, again, you can, you can you can endlessly metaphor uh, this, but uh, it can be a small ripple, it can be a big tsunami, it can be a flood, it can be all kinds of things. I I make the argument somewhere in there that it's. Most often, it's neither. It's it's a kind of cross current. The, it will split and spread and go in different direction, and this will happen because it does not hit the same shore. It hits all kinds of different local communities where it comes, and which then, which then has a kind of agency in its own right. The 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 bedawad, those who are. Uh, encountered along the way, the societies where these teacher scholars worked. Uh, in, in the book, that is uh, Lamu, uh, Zanzibar, it's the Comoros. I, I write mostly about Grand Comor, and that's simply to do with the source situation. It's not to say, or to my, my own field research, it's not to say that the other ones are, are not important. Then Diego Suarez in northern Madagascar, then parts of northern Mozambique, and, and finally Cape Town. And about when it comes to the <laughs> to the metaphors, I've sometimes thought retrospectively after writing the book that I should should have used also the concept of modernity itself, you know, to say that maybe it's all submerged in the end or maybe that's still ongoing this big uh, not submerged so much as absorb that there is this mighty tide that absorbs everything but it, the the analysis uh, in the ripples book stops there it stops with the with the ripple and the reef basically 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And, and in addition to the, the imagery of, of the text, I would argue also this comes from your um, professional career in swimming and your intimate relationship with the water. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, I never get enough of using image, water imagery. <laughs> that's great, honestly. Um, I, uh, in reading uh, the book, and, and you draw on a wide range of sources, whether they are produced in East Africa, but also elsewhere and colonial sources. And you've mentioned biographical dictionaries, hagiographic texts, um, Islamic legal uh, treatises. Um, that connects also to a, a very important intervention that you make in East African uh, Islamic history, I would say. And you published an article on this uh, from, um, was it from Middle Eastern history to African history, um, in which you argue for taking these, you know, textual sources seriously and writing uh, Islam's history in the region. Um, would you like to basically highlight why is it important to take into account all of these textual sources and, and thinking about Islam's history in East Africa? There, there, I, th I can think of two reasons. Now I'm, uh, I'm, I'm trying to reconstruct the argument I made in the book, but I, I can think of two reasons. One, one is to do with the connectivity, that it is obviously so that uh, texts that are foundational in a Muslim society would be so in East Africa too. I, I think we're a little bit past uh, proving that, but it's still worth pointing out. Then it's also, well, I, I can go all the way back to my old supervisor, Sean O'Fay's argument and, and the work that he did with uh, Professor, the late Professor John Hunwick, that uh, they, you would make a very wrong assumption if you posit societies without text, in, uh, especially in the Swahili context, but overall in the Islamic African context. Then secondly, the, the connectivity argument. And finally, I, I, think, I think it's maybe this, this is a perspective more than a methodology that we do assume that foundational texts, really core texts to a society, shape the society somehow in ways that we sometimes don't even think about or that are hard to prove. Uh, but let's say a text like the Minhaj Talibin, 
mainly used uh, legal manual. It it's just there. It's the assumptions made there are what um, what the legal structure is built on. Also in the colonial era, before and during. So knowing that tells you something about the society that that you want to study historically. Mm -hmm. And and I find in my reading of sub-Saharan African history, especially when it comes to the East African coast or the Sahel coast, the Mali coast, uh, I mean the Mali region, um, that these sources are not taken into account in reconstructing the past as if assuming that these paths are void of textual, you know, archives. Um, and I find this is very useful to bring these two together. Um, I would like to, yes. Well, uh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, for, for the Swahili context, that that is not, that's a, in a way an exception because there is a long tradition of studying Swahili as a literate language that's been around since, well, almost since the arrival of the Europeans there. I mean, the, the whole German tradition of studying Swahili poetry and so on. So Swahili is in a little bit different setting. Nobody ever suggested that it was a textless society. Yes. Uh, what, yes what I'm more arguing is that this is also part of it. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. But also that people write Kenyan history or Tanzanian history as well. You don't find these sources usually in these books. Um, so I would say it will be useful if you're studying, you know, Muslim societies on East Africa also to pick up, you know, uh, Arabic. Uh, and, and the recent work that has been done by a number of historians, uh, Thomas McDowell, Fahad Bishara and others have shown the potential of these sources. Um, I would like to move to the conceptual framework of the book. Um, how has the study of Islamic societies in the Indian Ocean influenced your framework by deploying de deploying uh, concepts such as network, mobility, agency, accommodation, religious authority, and translocality as analytical categories? What are the purchase of these uh, analytical categories that you use in the book? Well, I can tell you first about uh, the network uh, concept, because when I started out, it was really meant as a network analysis in the, in the sort of full sense. I studied all this literature, methodological literature on networks and density and extent and what have you, and drawing up circles and representing it uh, visually. But as I went along, I, I actually found that it made more sense on a, on a, on a simply on a descriptive level to, to lay it out as a, as a narrative because it exists over time, uh, not only space but but time. So and and again back to the to the biographical and hagiographical literature that's it really lends itself to, to the sort of network approach. That, that's why I suggested it to myself in the first place, you know. Uh, this one traveled there, he met so-and-so, he had this and that teacher, you know, how it usually looks. But uh, then I 
I I thought, you know, what am I doing? What what is this? You end up with somebody used uh, in a kind of derogatory way said the word, ah, oh, it's just silsila sociology. And I thought, yeah, that that's right. Actually, it. Uh, I took it a little bit to heart to say, what does it really show? And Un- unless you can uh, embed it in in a in a concrete social setting. So I, I left it a little bit. And I, uh, to me, network then became simply something that I dip, use on, on a descriptive level in, in a context. I'm, I'm not saying that you could, it can't be done. And I, I think maybe even it could be usefully done in, in this particular book. But it, it made more sense to me as a, as a narrative device more than a methodological one uh yeah you you said Mm -hmm. mobility Uh, that 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 is the indian ocean story right it's uh it's (laughs) i don't think there exists uh indian ocean book without the word in it uh i like to link it also actually to social mobility or i'm trying to you know, there is mobility, of course, that's a matter of course, but there is also the formation of authority in, at a certain place, at a certain time, that happens through certain processes. And in, in the book, I, I try to view the two as kind of interconnected. Mobility is, uh, or religious authority is constituted through mobility, rather. Uh, not necessarily of people alone, but of knowledge, of textual knowledge, of religious knowledge, of ritual knowledge. Uh, but I, I think the basic outlook in this book, as in many other Indian Ocean books, is uh, mobility. It's it's there. Mm-hmm. Did you say also translocality? <laughs> because that's a concept that uh, that worries me a little bit. And I, I remember it worried me when writing this book as well. Because that's also been one of the sort of main perspectives. And, and I, I, I know I say in the introduction to the book that I use it, I, I see translocality both as an object of study and as a perspective and and i use it all the time and again as a as a window again it makes a lot of sense i think you you can see a certain society or a certain group of people at a certain place and clearly if you look at uh, many of these indian ocean sites let's say zanzibar translocality is there it's in the practices just the very fact that uh, the Swahili population is Muslim. It's in art, it's in architecture, it's in language and poetry and, and what have you. So the Indian Ocean is such a space where the history is of so many elsewheres, if you like, has to be taken into account, even if you want to write about uh, one single small place. So it's an object of inquiry. I, when I wrote Ripples, I, I had a kind of ambition to 
to capture translocality as a process. And I think this is much more problematic. How do you, I mean, retrospectively, how do you point to translocality in the making, being formed, being uh, constituted? That I think is much more, how, it's much more difficult to pinpoint. You can show the result. You can show that societies and persons, people operate with all these spatial categories. They are clearly beyond the local. Uh, and so many have shown that before. And I hope I have shown it in this book. But I am a little bit more hesitant whether it's something you can capture as a process. So I didn't do it in, in this book. I, I remember having the ambition and thinking, nah, it's not really doable. Mm-hmm. And that would take also a, a larger time frame to, uh, to historicize, I guess, translocality. Um, and uh, one last thing, yeah. uh, in the book, you have the notion of religious authority uh, vis-a-vis local agency. How did you negotiate these two throughout the book? Yeah, that, that was also, uh, going back to the, the ripple and the reef thing, I mean, the, the, the embeddedness of the, these uh, scholars or teachers or the, the embeddedness of uh, Dawa, wh- whether it's actual Islamization or reform, was something that I, I thought first I will just do a show don't tell you know i'll just describe it and uh, it will explain itself (laughs) but it doesn't really and and i think it's a perpetual uh, it's it's a perpetual uh, problem because especially especially looking at reform actually because you reform it doesn't have to be islamic reform but let's talk about islamic reform once you propose to change something to be more similar to somewhere else typically under a islamic modernism perspective then you also propose to change local structures and that that change can only go so far and until it's not acceptable anymore so I, I, that, that's how I tried to negotiate it in this, uh, in this book. And likewise, I mean, the agent of change also has to change and accommodate and adapt slightly. I think I used the example somewhere in the book there that uh, the Dawa agents in, in Madagascar, they were actually permitted to drink rum in some settings because otherwise they wouldn't be able to integrate at all and and this would be the purpose or this would be a entry point exactly into the the context where they operated so it it certainly works two ways and i tried in the book to give agency to both in a sense mm-hmm. now let's move from the conceptual landscape of the book to the more concrete uh, aspects of it uh, in chapter three, uh, four, and five, uh, the first three uh, titled The Branches of Qadriya and the Shadiliya in Northern Mozambique, Silsilas to the South, chapter four, The Shadiliya in Northern Madagascar, 1890 to 1940, 
the planting of a garden and the growing of a Malaga- of Malagasy roots. And f- the fifth chapter, the, the Cape Town Muslim community and East African Sufi networks beyond the monsoon. Uh, in these uh, chapters, you've noted that the Muslim communities of Mozambique, Madagascar, and Southern Africa have received comparatively scant attention. And these three chapters fill this lacuna by following two generations of Shadali, Qadri, and Alawi teachers as mobile agents, as you say, of a specific form of globalization, forming a network through which both Islamization and Islamic reform could flow. Um, can you introduce these Sufi orders, how their history unfolded in these three chapters briefly? Uh, and the literal societies, uh, their variations along genealogical lines that you've traced, transmission routes, and assimilation that you've alluded to earlier, perhaps illustrating your answer by the many actors that you've examined in these three chapters. Uh, I can certainly try. <laughs> it's uh, in, a, in a way, what I do in this book is I, I treat or I, I trace rather three Sufi orders. The first one is the Alawiyah, which is the, the Sufi order that originates in the Hadramaut among the Hadrami Sada, the Sayyid Stratum. Uh, this is a very sort of known to be very textual or- oriented, very much focused on education, text, and so on. And also by the early 20th century, it was explicitly very Dawa oriented so spreading knowledge, spreading light, the whole imagery, again, spreading practices that they saw as uh, beneficial to, to the community, but also, you know, on the individual level. But I, I treat, or I, I, I do see the Alawiya together with the Qadiriya and the Shadiliya. I, in a sense, I don't see a very big difference between them in, in the way they operate. And you also see a lot of overlap up in terms of individuals who are active on behalf of whom, who gather to the together during the dicker sessions or the funerals or you know any ritual expression of practice. So I, I do treat them together, although there are some some sort of uh, differences between them. The Shadiliya, for example, is very often uh, associated with the Comoros and the Comoro Islands. And Comorians in general abroad, like typically in Zanzibar. Whereas the Kaderiya originally was, I think, first very much associated with people from uh, Brawa, from Somalia. And it has a very rich and strong history there. But as they branch out and spread out my my argument is more that they are doing the same they are, they are operating on the same principle spreading not exactly the same text but texts that have the same function and rituals that have the same function so i'm i'm showing some of the traveling scholars uh, for example muhammad al maruf who spread the Kaderia in uh, the Comoros and in Mozambique, you see that he's, he's doing exactly these things. He's uh, um, starting uh, schools, uh, collecting small funds to redistribute among 
uh, population, thus creating a kind of community. So in a sense, what my argument is more that what they're all doing is going beyond the whatever ethnic or linguistic or uh, geographical background they might have had and create these kind of, these new kind of moral communities that are so typically f- typical for the period you see the same in uh, madagascar with uh, one of the scholars there in northern madagascar ahmad al kabir who do the same thing forming these uh, communities around himself and then gradually grounding it in in the malagasy community from being a sort of Comorian expat uh, order to becoming a Malagasy order. And that's the Shadilia. And then you see the same in with the Alawiya. And that's when I take the history to Cape Town with Mohammed Saleh Hendricks and, uh, and uh, his setting up of a uh, of, uh, teaching institution there. So al- although they are different orders with different uh, historical traditions, different founders, and certainly different silsilas, they act in the same way. And I have to say, I mean, you, you, I, I did write that they have <laughs> received comparatively scant attention, which is only partly true, because many of these communities have received uh, attention for sure. And I'm thinking for, I, I, I've taken a lot of, ins- I took at that time a lot of inspiration from uh, Michael Lambeck and the work he did in Majunga in Madagascar and also in the Comoros and how he was thinking around uh, the wide range of use and understanding of text, you know, its materiality, its performance or performativity, its sound, language, all these other things. What, what, the meaning of text and so on. Uh, and when it comes to Cape Town, of course, the Cape Town scholars themselves have produced extremely uh, rich and detailed history of their own communities. And Comorian scholars have produced excellent PhDs on, on their own Islamic history. So in, in a sense, of, I've had a lot to draw on and just stitch together what was already there. Uh, the, again, by using exactly these uh, Sufi orders as a thread to to make it from a ser- make or to produce a proper quilt out of what was a series of patches, in a sense. And 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 the work of writing a connected history is not only you know the the act of stitching together, but also what. Writing a connecting a connected history makes visible in the analysis, which the book does uh, in a way that I would say others haven't done. Um, in chapter six, traveling text Arabic literate learning in coastal East Africa, eighteen sixty to nineteen thirty. Chapter seven, ritual of reform, uh, reform of our uh, ritual, Ratib uh, al-Haddad in southwestern Indian Ocean from eighteen eighty to nineteen forty, and chapter eight. Consolidating the Network, Waqf Distribution, and New Organizations in Zanzibar, 1900s to 1930. Uh, 
In these three chapters, uh, I would like to ask you, what defined Islamic reform within the Sufi episteme, as you call it? Why did, why did it constitute a rupture from the past? How did that manifest in terms of theology, transmission of uh, transmission mediums, writing genres, performance, and institutions? What are the major, I would say, contours of, of this uh, Uh, of this rupture? That, I think, is uh, is actually the question uh, which many scholars have tried to answer and uh, which I think this book is uh, a small contribution of uh, or a discussion about reform. I mean, when I'm teaching this and when I'm thinking uh, about what constitutes uh, Islamic reform, I, I still go back to the work by, uh, or the works rather, by uh, Yitzhak Weissman back in the early 2000s, I think, uh, on Salafi and Sufi reform in uh, late Ottoman Syria or Damascus, I think, and, and some of his other works, because he's saying, or his argument then was, uh, uh, in the Syrian context, that the, the so-called Sufis and the so-called Salafis, they are in fact saying exactly the same thing. <laughs> But they are saying it from different worldviews. The, these are uh, concrete manifest suggestions of reform that come out of different uh, basic views. And that's I, I've wrestled for a long time uh, with, uh, with the Ripple's book of coming up with a useful working uh, definition. And, and I'm, I'm still doing that. I, I, um, I give credit here also, I think, to Ulrike Freitag, who touched very much on this in her work on, on, the, on the Hadrami reformist uh, activities coming out of Southeast Asia. And lately also uh, works by Rediga Sesman and others on how this is in fact also cultural. It isn't only religious, it has to do with culture as well. But uh, bottom line, I, I still like uh, one of the suggestions put forward by Roman Leumeyer where he simply said it's change with the program. <laughs> change with the program and willingness to move or something because that means that you you don't have to label reform and i think in the in the 20th century and now looking back from the 21st yes you can find all kinds of reform activity going on in the 20th century and the and the 19th century, and the 18th century. Uh, but it doesn't really bring anything in particular to the table if you start labeling it uh, and saying, oh, this is a Salafi reform proposal, or this is a Wahhabi, and this is this, is this and this is that. There is no doubt that these uh, reformists that I'm talking about here, they are Sufis. In, in the full sense of the word. 
And if you should then start saying ideologically or socially in terms of ethnic or inside-outside perspective or locations and so on, I'm, I'm afraid that we are running the risk of projecting backwards in a, in a way, something that was not there, especially when it comes to the motivation, you know, the theological motivation or the legal rationale or so but uh, so you asked about the break with the past, you know. I think the main break with the past is a urge, a drive to, towards these more coherent moral communities formulated one way or another, usually through theology, but also very much through fic, through the, through the legal basic. And expressed socially in in ritual practice, uh, what you don't see, and and this is my point in the Ripple's book, is that you don't see a break with the moral authority of the past. The sheikhs are still valued. The saints are still valued. The moral authority inherent in the silsilas are still upheld, and this is the. This is, to me, the only thing that is different from any other reform that you see at the same in the same period. Otherwise, it comes out the same. It really it depends really on what you're looking at. You know, the, many of the leading Sufis whom I describe in the book and whose uh, whose trajectories I follow, they they were also qadis, and in their own uh, fatwas and and rulings, they would often make rulings that went directly against the so-called popular practices or what uh, anthropology used to call popular practices in favor of what looks from the outside like a concrete reform directly in the Salafi stream. So, And if you look at theology and, and this text that we talked about, then I think that there is an underlying assumption there that is quite clear. The outwardly theology i mean theology has a meaning that you can understand by rash, rational knowledge by rationale you can know it you can read it you can teach it you can uh, organize it in certain ways you can print it that's uh, when when the print culture comes in you can circulate it widely but you can also know it in in the mystical sense and the two are not uh, exclusive in, uh, in in this particular type of reform so the revelation is in the way the basis for both but it can be accessed in just in different ways and and I, now it sounds like I'm I'm categorizing anyway <laughs> but uh, the the reformist aspect is in all the other things in the outwardly suggestions of how our moral community should function. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, this, yeah, that is very helpful to complicate uh, the, the whole historical process rather than thinking of it as a neat, you know, break from the past and a complete rupture. But it's more healthy to think in more in the sense of you know, changes and continuities and discontinuities depending on the aspects we are looking at. 
Yeah, exactly. And and it there are also just simply organizational changes that are almost technical, you know. <laughs> we used to organize the Maulid in this way, now we will do it in this way because it's more practical or rational. Yeah. Or makes more sense to have it on a Thursday or this this kind of that things. doesn't of course preclude, you know, the assumption that it was a static past which did not, you know, uh, change and, and was dynamic in its own terms over the centuries until, let's say, the 19th century. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Um, the book draws, to a large extent, on Arabic sources. And that made me think about what are the contours of the, maybe we call it the Arabic cosmopolis in Eastern and Southeastern Africa. Uh, or should Swahili be posited as a cosmopolitan vernacular in the sense that uh, Ronit Ritchie uh, following uh, Sheldon Pollock argues for Malay, Tamil, and Javanese in Southeast Asia. Why or why not do you think that? Uh, are there other languages we may consider besides Swahili and Arabic as well? Well, I, uh, yeah, let, let me do the last question first, because definitely I think Swahili has is one of these... Uh, cosmopolitan vernaculars uh, absolutely and and i think you should ask a linguist and not me because, i mean swahili is also a continuum right it it uh, it's a continuum towards the languages spoken in the comoros and uh, northern mozambique and so on but but here linguists may uh, disagree with me completely but if you add if you see swahili as as a broad linguistic continuum, then you can argue that it can include all of this, the, the whole sort of range uh, of speakers and writers of, of the neighboring languages. When it comes to the Arabic cosmopolis of Eastern and Southeastern Africa, when I read Ronit Rich's book, I, I thought, you know, yeah, this is it. <laughs> this is exactly it. Uh, and when I read the works of, uh, or both the works, but also the sort of lists, uh, textual lists from um, Indonesia, especially like the ones that von Braunissen did in, in the early, early on, then I say, yeah, it's, it's definitely part of it. It's the same. It is, in fact, the same. Uh, with, of course, with variation and, of course, with adaptation. Uh, so whether or not you posit some kind of origin or not, I, I, I liked very much the cosmopolis uh, of text uh, approach that uh, Richie applied. And I think it applies completely in the East African context. It's the Indian Ocean context. Mm -hmm. uh this. Yes, um, I, I think this is helpful to think about further and uh, trying to find maybe other cosmopolis as well in the Indian Ocean, uh, which, you know, facilitated the movement of ideas and knowledge as well. Um, mm -hmm. In the last chapter... Especially when you, when you go into the... Especially when you come into the 20th century, mm -hmm. when, when you see more and more and more vernacular publications. That's true. And especially that you... You've touched on Malagasy, and I was thinking about thinking of Malagasy as well uh, in, in this context. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't know. I mean, the sadly late uh, 
Pierre Larson wrote a really good book about it, and I, uh, it may very well be so. Absolutely, I, I, I have don't even know a word of Malagasy, so I wouldn't be able to, to tell you. But uh, it's certainly something that's useful to think about. Mm-hmm. Drawing on on your study of Zanzibari works, uh, can you shed light on the religious or moral economy of Sufi orders? their associations, relationship with the colonial administration and Salafism, perhaps by talking about the cover of the book, which is which is really encompasses wide range of actors that were meddling in these different, you know, structures and associations and uh, uh, dealings with the colonial administration. Uh, yeah, the, the cover of the book, it's uh, something... Uh... It's a, just an intriguing piece, or there is a set of intriguing pieces of paper that are in the Sensibar, uh, or the Sensibar Institute of Archives and Research, that or Archives and Records, sorry, that um, shows the receipts uh, given upon uh, waqf transfers because there were some big waqfs in uh, in Zanzibar that were. Uh, destined for or set a certain proportion was set aside for the poor of Mecca and Medina. And then over the decades, the scholars transferred this funded to Mecca and each individual would have to sign sometimes with a fingerprint and sometimes with a signature and sometimes with a seal, most often with a seal that they had received this money. So it, it's for me, it was one of the few places where you actually had access to see how people were interconnected also in financial terms. Uh, because in the, in the, unlike Fahad Bishara's book, for example, in, in the mosques usually don't keep their uh, books. The, the bookkeeping is not available in a sense who unless except in the in the waqf uh, setting so what i was interested in there was basically the organization how uh, in which the traditional form of financial transactions which is the waqf uh, was made or done and then uh, oh, actually this is something i want to dwell more into in, in a coming work but now I'm not sure if I'm talking about the Ripples book or the another one, but uh, there is also the colonial context here that comes in very clearly because the Waqf Commission in Zanzibar had ultimately had as it its its clear ambition was to have no Waqf, but uh, of course they couldn't uh, leave it all together. They wanted to create a real estate market. Uh, but the individuals in this network, the people who actually did all this money transfer, they knew each other well. They had known each other for generations. It, it operated on a basis of trust, which eluded the British and their efforts to regulate, if you like, the waqf market. But what we do see, what what I deal with in this book, is this increasing drive towards uh, organization from being this kind of network where people knew each other and operated on trust and so on, they became organizations, they became uh, jamiat, they became uh, associations, 
they were tariqas, they were scholarly networks, and they became uh, associations. So moving from a kind of traditional framework of Islamic institutions then consisting of uh, the mosque, first of all, and the madrasa, and the waqf, it, it becomes uh, a transfer from between associations. So this model is quite, these two models are quite different, actually, when it comes to the organizational form. And I, I do argue in the book somewhere that the, the, the drive towards uh, organization is inherent in the kind of change with the program uh, reformist idea, that it was formulated explicitly and from the outset to be to have certain a certain agenda like da'wah like uh, islah which is often used the jamiat al-islah and irshad like the one in indonesia but it's also organizational it also happens with the financial transfers like the waqf which i explore in this book late uh, what I didn't go into there, but you you see the same with uh, pooling funds for schools, for example, for building new mosques, for supporting uh, Jamia members then to, for further schooling. But they are the same people. They come out of the same lineage. Yes, like. it's really important to highlight the institutional and legal underpinning of these orders and how, you know, what lubricated basically this mobility. It wasn't just, you know, piety and, 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 and these ideas, but also there was an economy facilitating all of these uh, activities. Um, the, certainly there is an economy there. And uh, uh, the problem I had with this particular book was that you can't really see it if you if you come from the uh, uh, biographical literature or you come from the Islamic texts or you back to what I said about the windows. You know, this is what you don't see. You you do see it in the waqf transfer. So I was I was happy to have that in a sense. I, I definitely agree to, with you. I've the last summer I spent the entire summer just reading. With the work files in Zanzibar archives, and I exactly. see it all there. Um, lastly, in the book, um, what are some of the impacts of Islamic Sufi reform in Eastern and Southeastern Africa, and and the impacts of these regions on Islamic reformist ideas in terms of pan-Islamism during the late Ottoman period, Islamic modernism, uh, Salafism, and lastly, Africanity. Uh, I know these are big. A concept and connection, <laughs> and it could take us to another conversation. Um, but you touch upon this in the book, uh, and I and if you can briefly just connect these uh, with the Sufi orders. Yeah, I, I, overall, if I if I can try to draw one overall argument out of the out of that book is that I. I do argue, and I do think, actually, that there is a kind of Sufi-based modernity growing out of, of this movement, which is still there as well. But this is 
this is a sense of identity. I, I argue at, at the very end of the book, I think, that, that it's, it's grounded not so much in the actual theology, because that's kind of given, but in the teaching styles, for example, in the ritual practices, and again, the local perpetuation of this. You see this in so many locations, not only in East Africa, you see it even more explicitly, I think, in, in uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, but an, another main argument in the book is what we have already touched upon, how, how these Dawa agents inevitably must deal with the hierarchies of power or the social structures or the cultural practices where they operate. And, and this is a constant tension with the, well, both with the pan-Islamist uh, or pan-Islamism uh, ideal and with Islamic modernism and with Salafism and with Africanity, uh, which I have not actually discussed that much uh, in, in this work. Because if you reflect, if you reform something to bring it in line with, uh, let's say, a pan-Islamism uh, ideal, it also means that you eradicate difference. And in, in the local context, this is problematic because you do interfere with local hierarchies. And in the colonial context, it's even more because there is a I mean, there is all these different communities that were already pitted against each other or hierarchically placed vis-a-vis -vis each other. And then who, who are you going to, who are you reforming actually? Or is it your own community only? Like, then you could say, yeah, the Shadalia reforms the Comorian community, the Alawiya deals with the, but it doesn't really work like that you are forming new moral communities. You could also say that you are building to, uh, the, the one thing that you didn't mention is uh, nationhood and Watania, um, you know, building towards uh, some kind of unity that has a notion of statehood, which I, I discussed a little bit in, uh, in the Ripple's book. I... I do think if we speak about uh, Islamic uh, reform, this is something I've actually formulated later and it's not in the book, but it means uh, reform is really where uh, local hierarchies go, go away to die in a sense. They, uh, they dissolve, ideally they dissolve. And, and that's just the, much of the idea behind uh, Islamic modernism, that's much of the trajectory of Salafism as well. But at the same time, there is also a straightforward modernity that grows inherently, that is not a leaving behind of the old, but a modernization of, or not modern, that's, a, that's the wrong word. The gradual reform towards existing in a modernity uh, that these Sufi orders do and, and continue to do to this day. Yes. 
this is really useful. And, and, and in addition to your book, you've also been involved in a number of uh, digitization and preservation projects of uh, East Africa's Islamic heritage. Um, and the projects such as the Mu'allim Idris collection in Zanzibar uh, with Scott Rees and the Riyadh Mosque in Lamu are notable examples. Would you share some fieldwork insights from your projects to, to trace scholarly networks, preserve and digitize East Africa's Islamic textual traditions in manuscripts and print? Do you have tips for graduate students and scholars who want to embark on similar projects? Uh, if you can share some of the successes and challenges, perhaps that would be helpful. Yeah, uh, actually these are the projects that I've, I've found uh, really, really, really great to work with. Uh, I, I do think it's, uh, now I'm into a whole other discourse, but you know, East Africa has all these cultural heritage sites and, and UNESCO involvement and so on and so forth. But there's actually very little attention to the textual heritage of, so everybody's looking at the houses. I always, when I pitch this, I always say everybody looks at the beautiful buildings and the lovely mosques, but nobody asks what's inside of them. So it's really important, first of all. I mean, it's, it's important that this is done. Uh, uh, the experience from the two projects has basically been that it's uh, relatively easy and straightforward procedure and that it's very, very, very important to work with local partners that who can uh, both do the actual technical work, but also sort of alert and explain what are these things that we are uh, digitizing here? What are the, what's their meaning? What, not, not sort of in, in, a, in, a, uh, in a catalog kind of way, this is work so-and-so by scholar so-and-so, but saying, this is how we used it. This is what it meant to us. Or if it didn't mean anything to the living now, it might have meant something to our fathers or grandfathers and so on. And uh, also to work with uh, local, or in, in the case of Zanzibar and Kenya, to, to work with, uh, with the really good institutions that are there, like the Zanzibar Institute for Archives and Records or the National Museum of, of Kenya, who are, have excellent expertise in their own right. Uh, for those who want to try something like this, I really recommend the Endangered Archive Program of the British Library. It's a simple application procedure, not very complicated. Uh, it's not a lot of money. <laughs> you don't get funding for cataloging, for example. So that's something that uh, you need to set aside either funding or your own work time to do. Uh, but the procedure is so simple and easy. So nobody should be afraid that they couldn't uh, handle the technicality of it. You know, it's a camera, it's a laptop, it's a photo stand, and you need a relatively, relatively uh, unused space, but you can basically do it anywhere. And anybody can apply. You don't need to have a PhD or a professorate or something to uh, to apply. So I recommend that. 
I have to say one of the, I was approached quite recently by uh, Jody Butterworth, who is uh, the coordinator in the Endangered Archives program. And she was going to give a talk and say, what, what do researchers get out of it? Uh, she asked me directly, what, what, do you, what did you get out of it? it isn't it just uh, technical work on the side? I know it's not at all. What you really get out of it, in addition to something that for a historian is extremely important to make sources available for historians everywhere, not the, just those who have access to expensive uh, online resources in uh, Europe and North America. You also, you, while you are working with the material, you get the history of the material. So it, it goes two ways because you reflect on it, you look at it. Sometimes you can think, is this something known? Is it something unknown? Do you think it's Zanzibari? No, why not? And so on. It, these are not answers. These are reflections on how texts are posited in a community and, and what's, what's their meaning. You know, to me, that made a lot of sense and it even changed my outlook and sort of drew my attention to the fact that even if the text is, is unfamiliar today, it still has had a history that people might be aware of. If they're not aware of it, then that's also interesting. You know, how, how the trajectory of a certain, I hesitate to say the word discourse, but how a textual community has a history. So I, I highly recommend it. I, I would say it's not not at all as important, or it's not at all as difficult or complicated as you might think. It's something that you can learn so quickly. This is really helpful. And I really like the idea of documenting the social life of these digitized and preserved texts as well, uh, in addition to the act of preservation. Um, and your relationship with one of the interlocutors, Ma'ala Madris, you, you mentioned actually in the book, is is uh, an aspect of you know uh, uh, in this project because uh, it also gave you an uh, an access to to how these texts were embedded in the society, um, understood and uh, circulated. So this is really valuable. Thank you so much. Um, Anna, you've taken uh, we've taken a lot of your time uh, you've been very generous uh with your time but also you're one of the most generous scholars that i've encountered in my field work uh and finally i would like to ask you uh what are you working on now can you tell us about your current or future projects that you hope to work on ah i can try <laughs> i can try i'm actually trying to finalize a, a new book i'm just working on it and i i regret what i have done because I started out saying, okay, now I've been skirting the issue for so long, let's now talk about modernity <laughs> and the interwar years in Zanzibar in particular. And it's such a hard topic to deal with because so many historians have had an opinion on it, right? And so many others have touched on it. And it also touches on so many debates on our time, 
like everything from decolonizing academia to trying to look beyond all this. What I'm really trying to do is look beyond the narrative of progress and development, as it's called. And then you get into the whole literature of the conscripts of modernity and who are the conscripts and who are the mercenaries and what sort of agency does a conscript have and blah, blah. So I'm, <laughs> I'm struggling, but uh, hopefully it will be finished someday. Uh, also, we hopefully have a new project in the pipeline. Uh, and that's together with Chasti Larson, who you might know, who worked on... Uh, spirit possession cults in, in Zanzibar and East Africa, and Scott Rees and others, where we try to look at the manuscript to print transition again, but here based in a, a thesis that there is a continuity through performance, because I'm really getting more and more interested in the actual performativity of text. Uh, and the hypothesis would then be that even if there is the manuscript to print, transition performativity in itself is a, is a factor for continuity. But that's not in my hands. That's in the hands of the Norwegian Research Council. So we'll have to see. Well, anyone who listens, please uh, contact. <laughs> to get the funding. If you have um, any connection in, use it now. Yes. <laughs> These are really exciting projects and I'll be looking forward to them. Um, Thank you so much for your time and thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored Islamic Sufi networks in the Western Indian Ocean, 1880 to 1940, Ripples of Reform, published by Brill in 2014. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.